0: So what we've done within Preston is we want to create what's known as economic democracy. That's basically putting democracy in our local economy, making sure people who work here and people who uh, live here have much more of a say over what happens. So what we realised within Preston is there's lots of wealth here anyway. We've got what's known as anchor institutions. These are things like hospitals and universities and colleges, housing associations, spending over £1 billion every year. So what we've done is we've worked with these organisations to go through the books and try to get them to pay the real living wage and also buy from Preston-based suppliers. So more wealth remains in our community. We also are supporting credit unions, we're supporting community development financial institutions, another way of keeping wealth. We're supporting energy democracy because a council in partnership with another Northwest council is now supplying energy um, from a, an independent energy company in Bristol called OVO as an alternative to the, to the big six. We also realised as well that within Preston, we're part of this very large 7 billion public sector pension fund, 7 billion pounds, and instead of that investing so much in equities, we persuaded it to invest 100 million pounds within Preston and the neighbouring borough, so that's developing within Preston. And then also we want to support community land trusts, and are also forming worker-owned businesses, worker co-ops. party
1: Friends, and welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party, I am Jack Evans. The words you heard before the theme tune dropped were those of Matthew Brown, the leader of Preston Council and a driving force behind the Preston model of community wealth building, which is what this episode's about. Uh, in this episode I interview Rianne Jones, who has co-authored an incredible book with Matt entitled Paint Your Town Red, How Preston Took Back Control and Your Town Can Too. Rianne is his ace as the book she's written and I think this is a top tier Mando's interview. If you enjoy the interview, uh, please do follow Rianne on Twitter at Rianne Jones. Well, and if you're onto it, you know, you've got the tab open. Why not make sure you're following us at MandoPie? Share this episode. Perhaps copy-paste the same post to Facebook and Bebo. We very much appreciate it. I would also like to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. We are very grateful. If you, listener, would also like to receive said gratitude, why not check out patreon.com slash mandatory redistribution party. We sometimes put extra little bits on there that are too bonkers for the main edit. People like them. Okay, here comes what you've been waiting for, the ep, which is short for episode. Before we get into the um, the community wealth building stuff and the book, I'm going to seize the opportunity as the only Welsh uh, host of this podcast to talk some Welsh stuff because um, I assume and infer that you are also from Wales, Rianne.
2: Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Uh, yes, from the Welsh Valleys.
1: Yeah, see, so I'm from the north, which is very different. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I've gotta say, I've never been to Rill. I've never been to the Valleys. Never
1: go. Never go. No <laughs> I've been I've been to Cardiff to see the Manic Street Preachers, like Ah, uh,
2: of course. Um,
1: my own, my only experience of the South extends to that though. Um, I went to
2: an All Tomorrow's parties at uh, Prestatin a few years ago. That was my, uh, that's the sum total of my knowledge of North Wales. Oh,
1: nice. <laughs> I've just seen a Facebook post that's come onto my feed of Boris Johnson, who is today in Prestatin. Oh God. Dark times for Prestatin. He can't
2: give away from Wales. He was in uh, Cambran a couple of weeks ago. He
1: loves it. He loves like, it.
2: B- bothering people while they were getting their vaccines. I mean, i <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: there's,
2: there's a level on which i admire his bravery you know but i mean uh...
1: i bring up wales so, kind of jokingly but it is kind of relevant for some of the community wealth building because of course the mm-hmm. Tredegar medical aid society which was the prefigurative form of the national health service created mm-hmm. by welshman nye Indeed. bevan right
2: um from the same town as me well, Chedega's got like several claims to fame, apart from myself, like Bevan was born there yeah. um, and then Kinnock,
3: oh. Bill Kinnock was
2: born there as well. So I think it's it's what you call a no-score draw possibly for vertical <laughs> politics from that part of... It's something that I, I wish it was known more widely, really, because mm-hmm. I think the, the NHS is sort of something that people do now take for granted, I think, but they also do kind of take it as a working model of, of centralised national healthcare that's free at the point of use. So I'm like, well, that is, you know, that's an example of actually existing socialism really in its... Um, In its bare bones. But also, yeah, it began in a a small, obscure town in Wales. Again, like really, really basic mutual aid principles, which we'll probably talk about. But yeah, yeah, like a a lot of civic culture at that time, a lot of like minus halls, Mm. um, libraries, meeting spaces, that kind of thing were literally sort of built by the community. Like people would pay like a, a shilling of their wages or whatever every month to pay for the upkeep and the, yeah. the staffing of these buildings and services. And it, and it worked, you know, it worked to the extent that Bevan could use it as a blueprint for a national uh, model of healthcare, which is uh, astounding when you think about it.
1: Oh, it's incredible. And I think it fits with one of your, one of the chapter titles in the book is solving problems from below without permission from above. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, just an absolutely fantastic example of that. Of course, not the only one, uh, from Welsh history, everyone knows Wales has got the best flag. But of course, <laughs> we also invented uh, the other best flag—not the one with the dragon, but the red flag of socialism mm-hmm. from the uh, the the Merthyr Tydfil Rising, which was yep, uh, eighteen
2: thirty-one.
1: Yes! Oh my God! Let's nerd out. <laughs> right, sack off the rest of the pod. Yeah, Merthyr. It's right, my, it was uh, like
2: yeah my mastermind uh, specialist subject.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love, you know, um, everyone knows, every good socialist knows the phrase bread and roses, but they don't know causa Barra.
2: Yeah, indeed, Mm. indeed. Now, Myrtha Rising is fantastic. Yeah. It's it's also really kind of like a lot of Valley's history, it's kind of depressing and grim to go back to the actual mm. places that these these uprisings took place. And you just like there's there's a Weatherspoon's named after uh, <laughs> Dick Penderin, the, the, oh. the martyr of the Murtha Rising. So it's a bit like, oh, God, guys, you, know, it's, oh, <laughs> you do a bit better than this. Dark. It is gutting.
1: Earth Rising and the um, the Chartist Rising in Newport, which mm-hmm. were yeah, yeah yeah basically leftist radical. Paramilitary uprisings in some ways, like they both had to be violently suppressed by the state. And I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure, didn't the Newport Rising was they were some of the leaders of it were sentenced to be hanged, drawn and quartered.
2: Yes, uh, yeah, they were the last men in Britain to be sentenced to that. Um, the sentence got commuted yeah. in the end, and they were um, ended up being like exiled to uh, Tasmania. I think some <sighs> part it, it was that that part of history where we just sent yeah. all our. <laughs> all our criminals and our mm, radicals mm, mm. to Australia and kind of just <laughs> <laughs> wondered how they'd get on or something. Like I don't know. It's, that was a really, really strange colonial uh, imperialist experiment. But um, yeah, caught up in that were um, the leaders of the Newport... Rising, yeah. I mean, the, the death toll at the the Newport Rising of demonstrators was huge as well. I think it was like the largest loss of life in like in peacetime mm. in in mainland Britain. Which I, again, you know, a, a little known fact. I wish mm. I had more, you know, kind of like inspiring and, and fluffy stories to tell about Welsh history. But no, it's all like, yep, they died. Can I try something else. <laughs> they died, but they and tried. They died. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Once again, solving problems from below without permission from above. Perhaps um, what's gone on in Preston and what we can talk about today has been more successful. And it's not, at least not yet been violently suppressed by uh, the government, but well, who knows? No, no, (laughs) there's
2: there's still time. Yeah. Yeah, There's still time for
1: Patel to replace Johnson and uh, things to go real hog wild. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I think, if, if we kind of get into the topics of the book then, I think the initial thing we should explain is what is community wealth building?
2: Okay, the big question. Um, the term itself comes from a group in the US called the Democracy Collaborative, who did work in Cleveland in the US, which was sort of a forerunner of the Preston model. Um, so Cleveland, like many places in the UK, was um, post-industrial, large city, um, facing problems like unemployment, lack of long-term investment, capital flight, so how community wealth building was applied both in Cleveland and in Preston is um, all about shifting the weight of local spending, local spending patterns, um, so that wealth stays within the local area and it recirculates instead of flowing out of the area to multinational corporations who don't put anything back in, um, you know, including in, in taxes, for example, increasingly. So instead of that, communities develop their own local small businesses, enterprises, including worker-owned businesses, community-owned land or asset projects. Um, so, the way that Preston took that up is to identify what are called anchor institutions. These are local, kind of deeply rooted, long standing institutions with significant spending power, like local hospitals, um, universities, schools, and um, that kind of thing. These institutions are asked to redirect their spending strategy. So, it goes towards local suppliers. I want to stress it's not about just like handing out contracts mm. uh, to your mates in the manner of like Boris Johnson, for example. Um, it's about opening up your bidding process so that local suppliers know that it's happening. So it's a transparent process. Um, you help local small businesses to apply so they don't feel like, intimidated by how much bureaucracy there is involved. And then, yeah, you, you let local suppliers bid for these contracts. Um, so, for example, contracts for school dinners, that was one example in Preston, um, was, was sort of broken down and um, awarded to local farmers and caterers rather than global catering firms, as it was going to before, or local building projects were taken on by local firms. Rather than outside massive private developers. So, what this does is keep more money within the local economy. um, It helps to stabilize local supply chains. And when more businesses start up, more people are given jobs, they have more money to spend in local businesses. So, it all goes in a virtuous circle. Mm. Um, And it's all common sense, really. Like these things are not particularly radical, I don't think. There are more wider and perhaps more sort of transformative ideas contained in it with things like um, if there are gaps in the supply chain where no local suppliers exist at the moment, then the plan is to help set up cooperative businesses to fill that gap. Um, And these companies would be owned and run by their employees. Um, There's also the idea of stipulating that suppliers, if they're given local contracts, they should be hiring local workers, targeting areas of structural unemployment, creating apprenticeships, um, paying a living wage, Uh, Ensuring trade union involvement in in the whole process Um, if they're given a contract for a property development They need to build a proportion of affordable housing into it and that kind of thing. Um, And also environmental considerations like using ethically sourced materials, renewable energy sources. Um, So through this, uh, there's greater democratic control and oversight of the the local economy as well as people getting more out of it in terms of jobs, wages, environmental improvement. That's it in a nutshell as far as community wealth building goes.
1: I kind of see it and I think a lot of people see it as a a revival of kind of municipal socialism that was a big thing back in the 1800s. And if you look at local councils, and, you know, or counsellors in England and well in the UK, it's like a horror show, Barnet Council, you know, basically yeah, yes. that easy, easy council model, which ended up, was it like pretty much directly controlled by Capita? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and that, you know, that was a, that's a Tory one, but then you've also got, was it Haringey with the, the Claire Cobra one where they were doing like hardcore social cleansing and Massive outsourcing projects, clearing out over a thousand council homes. And then, if you want to look into the saga of that, when the Corbyn era Labour Party tried to intervene and be like, can we rein this in a bit? It became spun in the press as like a sexist mm. Corbynist uh, witch hunt against this person rather than any of the things she'd done to decimate people's lives. And then, I'm really going off rails here, but then uh, <laughs> loads of councillors, loads of uh, Labour councillors came out in support of COBA including Sadiq Khan, like 70 council leaders. Because council leaders, including Labour labor council leaders, are generally kind of reactionary, managerial, some of the mm. worst instincts of like Labourism are like embodied in local councillors. But actually mm. the best and most successful project that generally the left agrees is pretty good is the Preston model and it is what's in and in Preston and the other things that have been identified in the book. So actually Local government can do incredible things. Um, and I think that's what's great about the the book you've written is it's very clear and practical and to the point about what can be done at a local level. That is not only making steps towards the kind of world and country we want to live in, but making direct material improvements to people's lives now.
2: Absolutely. You know,
1: not waiting for the state to bring it down on us from above. So that's, I think that is the key message of yeah. coming through the book, and I think it's fantastic and really inspiring.
2: Thank you. That's what we were aiming at. Really, it's a very, in in some odd ways, it's quite an experimental book. Mm. Like it aims at a range of audiences. Like it's trying to engage activists, mm. I guess, on the ground activists, um, policymakers, um, people in local government, people in. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot going on in quite a quite a short book. So I'm, I'm pleased people were able to sort of disentangle some of that and find that it had um, it had a bit of clarity and, and practicality because yeah, that's um, that's exactly what we were going for, to be honest.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really good. I mean, when I was doing research for this episode, obviously in addition to reading the book, I went and like looked at some other stuff and there's so many tweets and comments on things going, is there a book about this?
3: <laughs> and mm. it, yeah, you, they've, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: they have wished it into reality and you've created it. So I guess that we should look at what happened in Preston, the context of what happened in Preston and the kind of successes and limitations there, and then move to the wider thing. So I guess, um, let's talk about what the context was that the Preston model emerged from, like what immediate problems did the town face in the sort of early years of austerity? Um, and then how did it move to, uh, so Preston's just, if for those of you who don't know, it's a, it's a pretty typical town in the North, um, had the first KFC. In the UK, uh, Butch Cassidy, the, Butch Cassidy, the Wild West cowboy's dad, cowboy's dad, is from Preston. But yeah, so what was the what was the context of the Preston model emerged in?
2: Okay, well, there's um, there's a number of factors that came together in Preston about ten years ago. Um, so Matthew Brown has been a local councillor since um, 2002. Mm-hmm. He's had a, a long-standing interest in things like economic democracy mm-hmm. and cooperatives, but hadn't really been able to get anywhere within the city council in taking these ideas forward. Because mm-hmm. as we've been discussing, they were kind of wedded to the older models of like 90s style, mm-hmm. attracting outside investment through financial impact, financial incentives mm-hmm. rather than um, investing locally. So then after the financial crisis in 2008, uh, one of the knock-on effects of that in Preston was that um, one of their major regeneration projects called the tithe barn Mm. um, which is like a huge commercial complex that had been talked about for years as these things are like you know this is going to save the area all all hopes of redevelopment were sort of resting on it and then inevitably the investors and the sponsors who were multinational companies got cold feet and pulled out so the project completely collapsed around the same time because there'd been this ongoing context Mm. of cuts to the central grant that Local councils get from central government, mm-hmm. so Preston's grant was cut to zero. Um, <laughs> so it had no external um, government funding. Like yeah, it was, so it was left reliant on um, things like business rates and council tax, basically its own resources. So it had very little in the way of outside help, and the, the flaws in relying on. Models of outside investment with no local attachment became very obvious in that context, Mm. um, which meant there was some space for debate on what to do next, how to plausibly go forward, um, which was a situation in which it became slightly easier to say, well, let's try something new. You know, what have we literally, what have we got to lose at this point? So in 2012, um, Matthew Brown went to a talk in Manchester um, by Ted Howard, who's the founder of the Democracy Collaborative, Mm -hmm. um, who was talking about the similar work that he'd done in Cleveland um, with community wealth building. Um, So all of this caught Matthew's attention and that of some others within the council and the academic sector in Preston. So they began to work on the idea of doing something similar for themselves. Um, and that's that's how it all started, really. So the situation in Preston brought together a number of catalysts. So there, were, there were local people who already had these ideas. There were outside examples that were providing inspiration and advice. Um, and there was a political space for new ideas to be taken up due to the visible failure of old models. But, um, you know, in, in Preston, mm-hmm. the, the thing that meant it was able to be kickstarted was kind of like a last resort, mm-hmm. as in we, we've we tried other things no, we need to go for something new um, but it doesn't have to be a last resort it can be an active mm. uh, political choice.
1: Cool. So what specific things did they implement then to things turn things around because obviously in, in Cleveland they could look at that and actually they could see those big Cleveland was grim as well before this was implemented where it's like didn't like half the working age population leave in a few years or something in year mm. before it and it's
2: Yes, yeah, one of those like Detroit is one of those sort of really like hollowed out um post industrial places. Yeah,
1: bleak. So it was but that was the thing is they saw this thing they went oh this this even divorced from its its great ideological aspects, you can go like, this is a practical solution to problems we are facing mm. right now. And um, yeah, so what kind of things did they do? Let's get into kind of uh, progressive procurement and stuff like that.
2: Sure. Well, um, I mean, first of all, it was slightly different from Cleveland mm. in that um, in Cleveland, there's um, a greater avail- availability of kind of like philanthropic funding. Mm. So there was a lot of kind of like sponsorship and, and pots of money that they could dip into there. In Preston, the council itself was able to use its its status as mm. you know an owner of assets and as a, a body that that bought loads of supplies mm-hmm. um to sort of drive the procurement process so they were sort of leading by example really um so they are six um anchor institutions to sign up to this um i think the can't quite know i i yeah i can <laughs> i can look through the book and bring them to mind
3: um
2: off the top of my head i know that the, the local university was one um anyway six local institutions mm. that they said come and be a, an anchor institution um they, they were working on this with um claire's center for local economic strategies mm. who've done a, a lot of work with community wealth building as well in here's some stats in 2013 um the anchor institutions that signed up were spending uh, 38 million of their budget in Preston, uh, with the rest of it leaving the area. I think it was about 30% of spending stayed in the Mm, area. mm. Um, The rest leaked out. By 2017, this had increased to one hundred and eleven million million, so it almost tripled Mm. um, the amount of money that was circulating. By 2020, the rate of employment in Preston was the highest it had been for fifteen years. Wow. So again, you've got more people working, and, and crucially, things like you've got local companies encouraged to pay the living wage. Mm. So it's not just about getting more people working, as it often is. You know, because the number of just the, a basic number of jobs doesn't translate into you know are these good jobs? Are they enjoyable? Do they pay people enough to live on? In, part of it in Preston was ensuring that they did. Mm. So more money is circulating locally. Um, community confidence is growing, which you can see in the emergence of new independent businesses and cooperatives. So they're keeping jobs within the area and also um. Just keeping local creativity and innovation in the area because one one of the angles behind it as well was that um, loads of graduates from the university in Preston, mm-hmm. University of central Lancashire you know there was there was no real reason for them to stay mm-hmm. in the area when mm-hmm. they graduated so they would leave for Manchester or Liverpool or London, whereas now th- there's more ways for them to sort of channel their creativity mm-hmm. and um and to implement it. I guess so all of that is um is happening. I was really, and one of the things I like is the the range of new cooperatives that's um starting up, which which ranges from like a a taxi driver's cooperative, to a psychologist cooperative, mm. um and taking in like a sort of cooperative cafe and and coffee shop that also does like and catering training and that sort of thing. So I mean, just all this, all, all the stuff that we're used to not doing for ourselves, mm. you know, we we're used to assuming it will be delivered in in a kind of disappointing and overpriced way from someone outside it's like you can't you know it's 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 possible to do this within within the community and to invest in this kind of thing and and to get to get some kind of reward out of it i, I don't know i mean in yeah. just to finish with a stat as well preston was voted the uk's most improved city to live and work
3: mm. in
2: 2018 mm-hmm. so like it's not i guess it's not all about statistics and job numbers or whatever it's like do people you know what, what are people getting out of this do they feel happier do they witness material change and that leads to to social and psychological uh, improvement, it seems that it has impressed Preston. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I think that's great. I mean, the the thing um, I, I will say because this this was written in the middle of the pandemic, this book, which kind of threw a spanner in the works right. in terms of my ability to like get up to Preston. Because yeah, yeah, so I, yeah. I really I was looking forward to doing, you know, kind of vox pops mm-hmm. and saying what's your what's your lived experience of of the Preston model been, um, which I couldn't do as much of as I wanted. Because the Preston model, I think, is is now establishing itself in policy wonk circles, mm, if you like, mm. as, a, as an alternative economic doctrine. So decision makers can use it as a reference point for stuff that they want to do. Um, I think one big challenge that we have in promoting community wealth building, though, is to do a similar thing, establishing it within popular consciousness,
3: mm.
2: establishing it on the ground. And I, I think the best way of doing that is to focus on uh, material outcomes yeah you know and the the fact yeah. that there is a lot of um what's described as uh, place based pride mm. not xenophobic mm. kind mm. kind of like NIMBYism which we kind of we used to to thinking about within in that connection but yeah the just the fact that it's nice to live somewhere yeah. that you have a stake in. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, yeah, yeah, yeah. real, real basic stuff, you know, real, just common sense. Well, the but, way, uh,
1: you know, place, places, yeah, towns, quote unquote, are evoked in uh, evoked mm, yeah, UK yeah. political discourse can be really fucked up because basically what that means is, um you know oh we have to do things in the interest of towns it just means like be more racist it's just like coded uh, this 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 idea we yeah, call yeah, it yeah. on the podcast the phantom gammon of uh this like <laughs> idea of uh, what a working class person is who lives in a town and lisa Andy was really mm. bad for it i remember she did a tweet during the leadership contest of something about like oh we need to make people uh in towns feel like they're represented and she listed preston in her statement and it's like hmm <laughs> because she was doing the thing of like we haven't been flagshagging enough, and it's like I think there might be some mm-hmm. other stuff going on in Preston that you could be a better example, Lisa. But yeah,
2: um, absolutely. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Like making people feel connected to where they live is a good thing, and as you say, like isn't we need to fight back on the idea that that can only manifest as some like weird xenophobia? um
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And and it and it can be done, and that's that's the really cool thing of. Um, what what the preston model represents in my opinion of it like that kind of prefigurative politics because you know Mm. you you can get like hardcore sort of anarcho-syndicalist you know like libertarian communists who want um council communism or they want like uh a transition to like the workers controlling the means of production and it's like well how do you get a step closer to that when we're talking about Mm. worker-owned businesses economic democracy what's what's the closest thing we've seen to that in in you know on a on a larger scale rather than just individual co-ops and it's like the presta model is one really good example of that and mm. it builds instead of just hypothetically offering it in a manifesto you can point to a thing and go you've we've experienced that that thing exists and mm. that is that really existing links to the the potentials to change the narrative like then. They're kind of linked, aren't
3: they?
2: Mm, definitely, yeah. Have it, having an institutional framework for doing this, I think, is um, really useful. It, mm. it does mean that it is vulnerable to political change. Yeah. Like in, you sort of mentioned before, the the folly mm. of uh, focusing on elections as the only thing that matters. Mm. Like it, it is crucial, I think, that community wealth building is not driven from the top down. Yeah. And it's not. It's not something that is that is done to communities yeah. by whichever sort of white bald man in his in his fifties happens to be elected in in your local authority you know um it's it's about empowering people in their daily lives you know them taking decisions them having oversight of of how money is spent and how um how projects are run um yeah but having having some institutional base for it is is also good
1: what one of the examples you said was like taxi drivers and then did you say did you say um psychologists or psychiatrists
2: psychologists, yeah, psychologists. Yeah.
1: but again it's like these are things that are often associated with individual work or self-employed work so, and them mm-hmm. existing as shi- shift into a cooperative is uh a thing think socialists should be s- supportive of right um mm, you, you know because sure. it's uh, like it's They're becoming institutions, they're working together. Yeah, Uh, I think one of the cool things in the book is you go boots in on uh, Cameron's big society, which is a thing that's kind of been (laughs) forgot about.
0: The basic question is what is the best way to run our country? And my view is that the big top-down government solutions to every problem, that isn't working anymore. And so it is trying trying to try something different. And I think the idea of the big society is trying to help individuals and communities and voluntary bodies to come together and find solutions. So that's the big idea, is that you're looking for big society answers rather than big state answers. But if you want to sort of break it down into its three individual bits, I would say, first of all, it's about devolving power to the lowest level, so that if people want to play a bigger role, they can. Are we making it easier for people to come together at a local level and solve problems that they have in their communities? If the answer to that is yes, then the big society is succeeding and
1: one of the weirdest thing about Mm. big society was it was like a rationale for we're going to strip away local government you know like you mentioned earlier that all of preston's government grant was just taken away but the big society was used as a cuddly pr spin way of saying oh but other things will naturally replace these things from the community Mm. and it's like if you're going to have you know i think the term used in the book is like the real big society or something like that and it's like (laughs) uh, well if you're going to do those things properly why not do it through local government institutions because they are, I mean, let's not, let's not claim that they're purely democratic, but they're certainly more democratic than business Mm, and more publicly accountable, you know? So a big society divorced from that when it's basically saying, oh, just rely on like, I don't know, philanthropists.
2: Yeah, exactly. It was very, um, I mean, almost a kind of neo, neo neo-Victorian model, I think. Um, and, And it was very explicitly targeted at shifting the burden then or the, or the work of, of state provision, um, onto the individual, mm. um, at, at the same time as austerity. So you're asking individuals who, yeah. you know, were, were already going, going through mm-hmm. shit, you know, in, in terms of, they may be out of a job, um, they may be looking after elderly parents mm. or like, yeah, or, or their kids or whatever. And, and so on top of that, you're asking them to also, you know, do a bit of shopping for their neighbors or something that. Fuck off! You know what? what on the, the insulting, the insulting nature of the big society. I mean, I've basically been waiting about ten years to put the boot into it, so that's part of um, where, where, where the venom comes from in the book, I think. Um, but also, again, like because I, I think I do say in the book, yeah. it, it kind of overlooks the fact that um, many working class areas, mm. especially industrial areas in this country, were doing that kind of thing anyway out of necessity because they didn't have an NHS, yeah. they didn't have a welfare state, so they were they were doing all this mutual aid. For themselves and it was you know no one again like that that wasn't that was solving problems from below without permission from above they didn't need someone like david cameron to say why don't you uh why don't you try this um (laughs) but yeah all of that was a necessity the idea of state provision after um 1945 Mm -hmm. was meant to alleviate that so the fact that what we saw in the the 2010s was that being rolled back and then also being you know chastised for for not stepping in to fill the gap terrible terrible way of (laughs) governing
1: Just so evil I mean, basically. <laughs> um But yeah, let's let I me mean, let's consider the Lib
2: Dems of course.
1: Oh yeah, blood on the hands. Um, <laughs> so that's all for carrier bags um so (laughs) let's keep talking about this kind of positive vision of what what community wealth building can do then so maybe let's talk about some of the strategies you can implement at a local government level because i I think one of the ones that surprised me was the kind of alternative local democratic forms of finance like credit unions and people's banks
2: yeah i mean credit unions have a a long history in the uk but like cooperatives it's been quite sort of scattered it's not been done with institutional support Mm. i mean in, in a nutshell like credit unions are an alternative to banks building societies mm. and they have been set up successfully. Mm. They have a long history and in uh, Germany's, I think I, I say in the book, like they form a far more kind of formal institutional part of the, the finance economy. So again, they're not a, a pie in the sky idea. Like yeah. they, they are things that have worked in the past are working in the present. So with credit unions, again, in, in a nutshell, when you open an account, they work in exactly the mm. same way as a bank, really. But when you open an account, you are buying a share in the cooperative, which gives you a say in how it's run. All the money that goes into it is pooled so that other members can get loans. Income can be used to fund local projects or services that will benefit the community. And people's banks are very similar to credit unions, but they work on a larger, often a regional scale. So there's one being set up as sort of an offshoot of the Preston model, which is going to cover the Northwest. Mm. There's one, uh, Bank Cambria, which has been set up in Wales. I think There's one being set up in... um, like Bristol and Avon mm. as well so there's these kind of they're covering regional areas rather than communities or particular neighborhoods or workplaces which credit unions often do. And I guess the the place of um, these alternative models of finance within community wealth building they're aimed at ordinary people with small amounts of money to deposit so not oligarchs mm. you know without yeah. <laughs> like any, anyone can uh, can open a open a deposit including um, the financially excluded so individuals who you know may may be former prisoners or something Mm -hmm. like that, Um, people who who aren't able to access um, conventional banking services, they're there for those as well. Um, They can replace banks, many of which are withdrawing their branches from high streets. Mm. So there are loads of towns that don't even have a bank Mm. branch. Mm. Um, So regional banks can replace that. They can replace private lenders, like particularly payday loan lenders who often operate in a really predatory, despicable fashion. Um, And they can provide startup capital for community projects or local small businesses. So they can be, yeah, these alternative models of finance can act as a hub for other parts of community wealth building.
1: Mm. So let's, let's get into these other parts of community wealth building then. So maybe, um, we could talk about land and housing. Cause I think that's another thing people associate with councils. Cause, and people are quite skeptical about councils is often they are mm. massively in the pocket of like big landlord or half of them are landlords themselves. Um, mm. and I've seen some bizarre rationales of this of like, oh, we need to get more landlord money in because then we can get more rent or rates from them or something rates. that we can then spend on social goods. And it's like. Mm, I'm sceptical.
2: Yeah. I mean, all of the, um, I think that the principles really are the same, are the same across a lot of mm-hmm. this. It's like people who actually are service users. Mm-hmm, then I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's a horrible way to describe someone who rents, for example, yeah. but yeah, some, someone who is, who is using and paying for a service. Mm-hmm. Naturally, they are going to know a bit more about what, what their needs are mm-hmm. and what the priorities of, um, Of spending should be and that that goes from you know a person a a tenant would know better than a landlord yeah um similarly like there's stuff about participatory budgeting and that in Mm -hmm. in the book which is where councils basically allow the community to decide how to use a proportion of their budget because again if you are asking the community what their needs and priorities are you're going to be able to spend money more effectively than if you just didn't ask them. I yeah. um, yeah. didn't do any local consultation and just kind of assumed, you know, oh, we'll spend, we don't need to spend money on street lighting, you know, we'll spend it on uh, planting daffodils along the M4 or something <laughs> to take a, uh, to, to, to delve back into my childhood. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Ridland Council, which is uh, the council that kind of control, even though Ridland's actually quite a small place, but it can, it controlled like uh, what would now be a part of uh, Denbyshire County Council. Uh, kind of around Rill and everything. And they I think they got in deep shit in the 90s for, uh, I mean, everyone sort of, I know from where I grew up in North Wales knows it's like corruption, but I think legally they all got, (laughs) like no one got found guilty of of anything. And it was just like some weird clerical areas, but they ended up spending like quadruple their money for the year, like their capital spend, but they didn't spend it on like mm, social housing or anything like that. They just built like giant, insane developments. Like they built this thing called the children's village in Rill. And Rill used to be a little bit like Llandidno. I don't know if you've ever been to Llandidno in North Wales, where it's this like... I it's got It's like a beautiful kind of Victorian pier. And uh, it's one of those places where you look at it and you go, this is very nice, but it also looks very Tory. Um, <laughs> but what they did in Rill is they, they built this... They blocked it so you cannot see the sea. And in front of the sea, right on the beach, they put this sort of concrete... And not like cool use of concrete, not like Preston bus station, <laughs> right? Bus Brutalism. <laughs> it's like... It's like a, it's a monstrosity with a big like underground car park. Immediately, I think there was some spaces for businesses in there and it had like a Wizard of Oz aesthetic with like weird spires and stuff, but all kind of concrete. And you could have opened businesses there, but no one did. I think there was a Cadwaldo's, which is like an ice cream place. And then it just closed down. um, And it's basically kind of just been a dead area for like two and a half decades since it was built. But none of those decisions were made democratically. Like, if the people in mm. in that area were consulted and, like, oh, shall we build a bizarre concrete area and call it the children's village, <laughs> or shall we build something we might use? It's like, uh, well, th- this is why I kind of, I'm, 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 I'm I, because some people are very sceptical of the Preston model or this kind of community wealth fund stuff mm. and the dem- democratization of those things and engagement with like local institutions. And it's like, well, no, because. It is massively better on on ev- in terms of the material outcomes and in terms of prefiguring the kinds of society we would rather live in right um, mm. because that fucking
2: monstrosity in real wouldn't have been built I mean one of the the um, examples that I found really intriguing when I was researching was um, a group called the Green Valleys yeah. who were doing um, a land stewardship project right in the Welsh valleys, which is very very near where i 'm from, so I was I was kind of intrigued. Mm. By it, um, but like like you're saying, what, what what they have done is to speak to people with a view to actually doing something, yeah. which is something that has just been missing from so many previous like regeneration consultation exercises. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, like I remember growing up in the '90s, and they were always endless. Um, you know, with it, especially because we were kids, mm-hmm. and they, they would have a whole like sort of sit us down in a circle and go, "How would you like your town to look?" I'm like, well, you know, maybe our, our dads wouldn't be out of work. You know, we're go with that as a <laughs> Yeah. as a starting point yeah. you know obviously you didn't say this but that was the kind of the the attitude towards it yeah. um, and th- i think there still is in wales like there's a really well-founded um culture of skepticism mm. like it's not really hostility mm. but it's um it's just kind of the fatalistic idea when you do talk about ideas for positive change and you know people rightly respond with well we, we've heard all this before though mm. um for decades and nothing has uh has come of it. However, mm. um, with the the Green Valleys, the Skyline project, one of the things they did was take the people that were involved in the consultation to a uh, working community farm in Scotland mm. um, as an example of the, the ideas in action and the ideas that they were talking about. Um, and this worked far better than just sort of endless focus groups and talking shops, because people could look at that and go, oh, right, this is you know, actually existing thing, which works okay. It now seems far more plausible that we can have a go at that ourselves rather than sitting around in a room above a pub talking about mm. it endlessly, which is um, what these things have normally been. So yeah, showing people results, you know, not just sort of empty promises, I think is is the bottom line. So I think that's an area where community wealth building can really play um an empowering role, just focusing on practical results, not um, empty promises and listen to what people's priorities are, which was the other thing that was Mm. done in in the Skyline project. Like it wasn't sort of people coming in and saying, we've got a blueprint for how we can transform the valleys. It was literally saying to people, what would you like to see here? What would you be Mm. prepared to put your energy into? Which came out with, you know, there were... Like a like a really eclectic range of things from like glumping pods to a Christmas tree farm and a scrambler bike track, this this whole mix of both leisure and commercial
3: mm, activities.
2: Mm. But you know, that's that's people's honest ideas, you know, that's what they want. So why not why not try and put that into action rather than saying, No, you want a shopping centre <laughs> you know, or you want you want a you want a, a concrete sculpture?
1: Yeah, I mean absolutely. I mean it comes one of the other examples in the book, you talk about North Ayrshire and um an mm-hmm. example of Kilmarnock FC as one of the kind of anchor institutions of, cause you know, like mm. you think about like, Oh, it's going to be procurement with like big NHS or university, like institutions like that. But, and again, I think local community led football clubs can be linked to this wider, uh, community wealth building agenda, which is a, you know, very relevant thing in terms of people fuming at the super league, uh, mm. uh only recently, uh, kind of brought some of these things to the fore of like, okay, we're going to put the fans first, but, you know what does that look like mm. um and there's there's a way that that kind of sentiment can be just brought into these kinds of activities and and i think that's um one of the cool aspects of the book is you explain each thing and like how to do it and then you even have a bit at the end that's like how to become a local councillor how to get engaged and i think perhaps that's where we should kind of go uh, uh, as we head towards wrapping up of like someone listening what could what could they do what should they do
2: (laughs) well first of all like i think one of the bottom lines of the book is that community wealth building is a local thing Mm. so applying it locally is going to depend on local circumstances Mm -hmm. um what resources you have locally what assets um what personalities you have in your area (laughs) and, and what ideas they have all these things are going to shape the way that you take up community wealth building um in preston it was led by the local council. So mm-hmm. the book has a section on how to get involved with that particular avenue of things, mm-hmm. if that's what you decide to do, standing for election yourself, um, how to write policies and get motions passed, that kind of thing. But yeah, not every place is like Preston. Mm-hmm. Every locality will have its own resources and ideas. I mean, first of all, I think I would say it's worth just having a look to see what is going on already yeah. in your local area, just looking at social media, seeing if like, existing groups are already set up. Um or whether people are talking about doing something on those lines mm-hmm. um like maybe you might find like minded people in your trade union branch, mm-hmm. uh your local labor branch you might have a local renters' union or a group that are interested in taking over a local um like a disused pub mm-hmm. yeah. um, and yeah, running yeah. it um collaboratively like that's that's been done a few times um or a building that could be used as a community space mm-hmm. or a a workspace, so just kind of see what's going on. The book has a list of places to start if you're interested in taking up any aspect of what you read about in the book. Um, I mean, for, for sort of really nitty gritty, like policy stuff, there's things like the Democracy Collaborative website mm-hmm. who um, they are based in the US, but they, they have a lot of like toolkits that will take you through things like progressive procurement and how to actively make the arguments for these things um, and there's also CLES in the uk there's institutions like cooperatives uk grassroots organizations uh, like acorn who a sort of network of community organizations with branches across the uk um, it's a group called stir to action that works on again like the, the new economy so things mm-hmm. like democratic ownership and cooperative so it's worth checking those places out for again like existing examples of what can be done um ideas and guidance as well from people who are already doing it um so yeah I, i'd urge you to sort of use the Use the book as a resource. Seek out what's happening in your local area. Yeah, join up with like-minded people and um, do horizontal networking or as we sometimes call it, talking to each other.
1: <laughs> radical, radical. <laughs> I don't know, that was that. that was really good. Um, I, I'm trying to think how to wrap up now. Have you got anything else you'd like to desperately convey?
2: Um, I very much enjoyed writing the book and I, I didn't quite know when I sort of took up the t- took up the idea of it, I didn't quite know how it was going to turn out, but I think it's turned out... Um, very well i'm, I'm really like great yeah actually quite excited and positive about what's um what's in the book and i'm welsh so positive thinking like doesn't come <laughs> naturally to me at all and i think a bit of a bit of positivity is um is what's needed on the on the left right now certainly as well i think yeah i mean the last yeah i, I won't talk about the last uh, the last five years but i think community <laughs> wealth building is an area the left can put their energy into yeah. um, and see practical results which again is is the the main thing. Um, and that can be done outside the Labour Party. Like mm. you don't, you don't necessarily need, um, that, that base or that, uh, that leadership to do it. Yeah. I think I'll, I'll probably just say as well to sort of, well, not preempt criticism, but just to say that, like, I, I recognize the validity of criticisms that say, as you were saying before, like, oh, well, it's yeah. just tinkering around the edges. Yeah. Okay. It's not the, it's not the revolutionary overthrow of all existing conditions. Fair enough. You know, but it's, it's making, positive changes it's yeah. engaging with people on the ground and empowering them in their daily lives that is something you know don't let the the perfect be the enemy of the good jerks i think yes. we, we do that all the time on the left and it's not uh, particularly constructive um and alternatively like from the the other angle don't dismiss projects like community wealth building as like radical communist pie in the sky utopia that won't uh, won't get anywhere because you know that's that's not the case either
1: Mandatory redistribution bar. It was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean with additional music from Jack Evans. Rian's book, Paint Your Town Red, How Preston Took Back Control and Your Town Can Too, is published by Repeater and you can find it in all good retailers and many of the bad ones. So, you know, maybe try and find a local bookshop or something. Avoid getting your money sucked out to where uh, Jeff Bezos's tax havens. Wait, well, doesn't need a tax haven, does he? Just everywhere's a tax haven if you're rich enough. Thank you for listening. Uh, Thanks for those of you who support us on Patreon or share episodes on social media. We really do. We love it. We get a proper buzz off it. It sparks joy. Um, Thank you. Hope you're having a lovely time.